Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of As Per Usual, a podcast for practical patient engagement. My name is Anna Hudik, and I am your host. Today's episode marks a shift in focus for our podcast to a series of episodes that seek to bring awareness and understanding of existing infrastructure to support Canadian patient engagement and research. So I'm very excited to welcome Andrea and Linda onto our episode today to tell us about the Strategy for Patient-Oriented Research's Evidence Alliance. Andrea and Linda, welcome. Could you please tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves? Great. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. It's such a pleasure to talk about a a topic that I'm just incredibly passionate about. Um, So I am a scientist at Unity Health Toronto, and I'm also an associate professor at the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. I'm also the nominated principal investigator of the Strategy for Patient-Oriented Research, or SPORE Evidence Alliance, which is what we will be talking about today. Um, And I have the honor and privilege of working with amazing uh, patient partners, such as Linda. Um, And so I'll turn it over to you now, Linda. Hi, I'm Linda Wilhelm. I am president of the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance. I'm on the steering committee for the Evidence Alliance as a patient uh, representative. I live with rheumatoid arthritis. I was diagnosed at the ripe old age of 23, 40 years ago this year. I've had a lot of uh, interactions with the healthcare system over my life, some of them productive, some of them not so great. So it prompted me to get involved when I needed a new medication uh, 25 years ago, and it wasn't approved in Canada. I set out to learn as much as I could at the time about the drug review system and realized that it really is very complex in this country, uh, probably more complex than many other countries. So I got involved as a patient partner in research because I figured research, if we have evidence, then maybe we can get policy change through showing government the evidence and that was my, my first love is advocacy. I wanted to help other patients and I want other patients to have good outcomes. And through research, we can uh, help to inform practice and change policy. And that's my biggest motivation. That's awesome. And you're absolutely right, Linda. Um, so could you guys start us off today by explaining what the SPORE Evidence Alliance is? Sure. Uh, So the Spore Evidence Alliance is a Canada-wide partnership. So this is between researchers, uh, patients and the public, healthcare providers, as well as health decision makers. So we were funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. Uh, This was back in 2017, as well as many different public and not-for-profit sector organizations. Um, Our mission is to promote a Canadian health system that is increasingly informed and continuously improved using scientific evidence. And our approach includes using evidence-informed methods to guide everything that we do. And our research environment promotes inclusiveness, respect, and collaboration. And everything that we do is co-designed with decision makers. And so our key decision makers are uh, patient and public partners, as well as healthcare providers, as well as health policymakers, and basically anyone 
uh, who would be impacted by our research findings. So in every project that we do through the Spore Evidence Alliance, we try to have patient and public partners involved. We try to have our uh, clinical or content experts involved, policy decision makers involved, as well as the researchers, research staff and trainees. And we come together to co-create or co-produce a project. And we have several examples where we have uh, co-authorship of multiple uh, different types of knowledge users or decision makers on the team. And we're incredibly proud of the approach that we use. That definitely sounds impressive. And it also seems like a perfect fit for Linda's aspirations and her reason for getting into research and advocacy. So could you tell us a little bit more about the history of the network? So how it came to be? Sure. Yes. And Linda has been with us since the very, very beginning, right, Linda? So we've been working together for a long time. And actually, Linda and I, we have a history of working together, even with the Drug Safety and Effectiveness Network. So that was even before um, the Spore Evidence Alliance. So it's just fantastic to, again, as I mentioned, work with amazing uh, patient and public partners such as Linda. Um, so in terms of the history, so CIHR had released a call for proposals, I believe it was in December of 2016. Um, and then the application was due in the spring of 2017. And then after about six months, uh, we were very proud uh, and privileged to be the selected team to take on the Spore Evidence Alliance. So that was announced in September of 2017. And then it took us a while to get up and running because one of our main features that we do with the Spore Evidence Alliance is that we accept uh, projects that come from policy decision makers. So that was kind of our first uh, milestone was trying to find a mechanism where we can have um, these requests come in we call them queries come in from policy decision makers and we can answer them using knowledge synthesis methods, clinical practice guidelines or knowledge translation within a focus of patient-oriented research. Um, so that was the biggest milestone for us, which happened in April of 2018, that we were able to start accepting those queries. And then as time has evolved, um, you know, we have picked up a lot of other functions that were part of our objectives. So for example, another key thing that we do is capacity building. So we provide capacity building to 30 plus research teams across the country on how to do proper patient engagement and how to work with policy decision makers and also on the methods. So one of our main products is the rapid review. So, so we've done a lot of methods work and methods capacity building in that space. And then we've also done capacity building with patient and public partners that have been co-led by patient and public partners. And Linda has been a coach and been heavily involved in the two courses <laughs> that we have run for, for, for patient and public partners. So um, we have trained up a cohort of about 46 members across Canada uh, who are then able to um, participate in rapid reviews and other types of knowledge synthesis as members, equal members of the research team. Uh, so, so that was a piece that came on a little bit later. And then we also have a mechanism where patient and public partners can submit topics and they go through a prioritization process 
with a panel. And then the ones that are selected uh, to, to proceed, those ones are actually co-led by the patient and public partner. Um, so we're trying to get to the highest level of autonomy for patient and public partners. Of course, the highest, highest would be that they hold the funding and make all of the decisions. <laughs> uh, but we're trying to work within the Canadian Institutes of Health Research or CIHR, um, you know, within their rules so that we can have patient and public partners really as a co-leadership model and really co-leading those projects. Uh, so to date, we have completed three projects like this and we um, have prioritize another 20 projects. Um, so that kind of gives you a flavor of some of the different types of things that we've done with the Spore Evidence Alliance and how it kind of has progressed over time. I've been involved right from the very beginning with the Evidence Alliance. I was involved in the initial application in 2016. I was involved, you know, kind of in all the review of the application, in the evaluation of patient engagement. So I was really excited because we had external evaluation through uh, Cleon Hamilton and his framework, his patient engagement framework that I'd actually worked on like 10 years before. So it was kind Kind of nice to see the framework come into action through the through the evidence alliance and uh, been co-author on papers and just uh, the training that I got for you know for rapid reviews for knowledge synthesis has been so valuable. I mean, you can imagine during COVID where we you know decision makers and policymakers were saying we need to know we need to know, and yet you know so that having the evidence alliance in a position you know where we were well set up at that time to just kind of take these queries about COVID and run with them. And I worked on one, the Moderna vaccine and the incidence of myocarditis and periocarditis uh, for young people. And I mean, that was such valuable information for parents because we saw that it was happening mostly in young, younger men. And when you got to do the rapid review and get that information out in the hands of patients before they have to make the vaccine decision, I mean, that's really important work. Could you help us understand how these queries work? Um, do they always result in perhaps as a first step, your group conducting a rapid review? Is it always the same group of people who do conduct the work or just kind of walk us through that process? Yeah, absolutely. I would be happy to. So first the query, so we have two mechanisms. So one mechanism is for policy decision makers, and then the, the other mechanism is for patient and public and community organizations. So that's a completely separate process. Uh, so when it comes for policy decision makers, so they would submit a research request using a simple online form. And so the form would ask them, what is the question they're trying to answer? What decision do they need to make? What's the timeline? Do they have funding? Questions like this. And then what we do is we try to set up an intake call with them where we try to provide more clarity on the question and see whether there has been evidence done before. Do they know of studies that are relevant? We call those seed studies or seed papers that would be useful to them and they want to find more in that area. Perhaps they're not aware of anything being done in the area. Uh, so we would start off with that intake call and, and really try to understand what kind of a product would be most helpful to them. And then we decide what kind of a method we can use. So we can use 40 plus different types of knowledge synthesis. And oftentimes we end up doing rapid reviews 
or rapid scoping reviews where it's just a very broad uh, snapshot of the literature where we're trying to find out what has been done before on that topic. So we would work with librarians to see what has been done before and if it even makes sense to proceed with this. Um, so, so that's kind of how we would start off with that. Now, sometimes they do come to us with a knowledge translation question. So then that would be that perhaps they have tried to, to implement a program within their organization. Perhaps it's guidelines that they've done that now they need to disseminate. So then we would use very different methods for the knowledge translation piece so that we could support them getting that evidence out into the decision makers or end users who need that evidence. So when it comes to the knowledge synthesis, then once we've decided on a method, we would look at the topic and then we have 30 plus teams across the country that are highly specialized teams in knowledge synthesis and knowledge translation that can actually lead the query. So we would reach out to them and we would say, you know, Health Canada or whatever organization has come to us with this particular problem, this question, we believe it could be answered through a rapid review as an example. They have a three month timeline. They do have a bit of funding that can be used to, to fund you and your team to do this project you know, would you be interested in taking this on? Um, so then, you know, we talk to the team and then we also say to them, you know, by the way, we also would like you to engage with patient and public partners on your project. And do you need us to connect you to those patient and public partners? And if they do, we have another simple form that we ask them to, the researchers to fill out that we send to the to our uh, cadre of patient and public partners across the country who are highly trained and have done this work before. And we ask them, is this an area where you have lived experience? Is this a project you'd like to work on? Have you worked with the team before? Start thinking about that relationship building between you know, the different partners. Um, and then we ask them if they have trainees. So they do they have trainees that can work on the project as well? Do they have clinicians or content experts? And if not, we really act as a uh, broker to bring these people together so that the project can get done. We also provide the, the research teams with several tools that can be found on our website. So all kinds of different webinars that we've done in the past on the methods, on the collaboration, on how do we create a safe space for the team because there are power differentials. How do we make sure that the patient's voice is heard? Um, because our one of our main missions is to try to bring the patient's voice as close as possible to policy decision making. So what are the innovations that we can do to make the patient's voice heard? So one thing we do is in our executive summary, we have a patient's interpretation of the evidence. And so the patient or public partner who collaborated on that project they're able to provide their perspective on what does this mean, right? And, and really at the end of the day, we want a project that is co-created, that everyone feels like they sat on the team as an equal member, that their voices were heard, their opinions mattered, and that they co-own this piece of work. So, so that's kind of what we do when it comes to policy decision makers. And then let's say, like you said, there we find out that there is no evidence available. Then because with the Spore Evidence Alliance, we only focus on knowledge synthesis, knowledge translation and guidelines, then we would say, well, maybe they need to go to the Spore data platform. Uh, so maybe they need to go to different initiatives, you know, maybe the, the randomized trial platforms that have been set up across the country to consider potentially doing primary research in, in that area, but that would not be conducted uh, by the SPOR Evidence Alliance teams. And I'm not sure, Linda, if you wanted to add anything to the process or maybe speak to the patient and public process a little bit. 
Yeah, the, the patient in public, I think, is, falls along a very similar process, right? I mean, they, you, you, the patient, I, I've submitted queries. Uh, you know, initially, there was only a couple queries funded I, you know, for a couple of years. And then this year was really exciting because there's 25 queries and my query got funded. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, I'm excited. And the process is the same. You submit your query and then you do an intake call because there might be another query from another patient partner that's very similar to the one that you put in and is there a way that we can combine those two queries and make it into one query and uh, thus we can help more patient partners understand is that was one of the things that you know then Andrea spoke about the drug safety and effectiveness network I was on their steering committee for 10 years and that was one of the things I got frustrated about because they only accepted queries from like Cadith and Health Canada and maybe the provinces as well, but they would never accept the query from a public or a patient. And that was, to me, it was frustrating because I thought, you know, here, you know, we, I had lots of queries I would like answers for, right? So, so yeah, so that was exciting. And then, the, yeah, the same type of process, which is really great because it just shows that it is taken seriously and, you know, we can get this evidence to really inform policy. So can literally anyone, as long as they are a policymaker or a, a patient or care partner, submit a query? And how does that adjudication process work then for deciding uh, which ones are going to be pursued? Yes. So that's a great question. So yes. Yeah, so anyone, even healthcare providers, so any decision makers in the health system could submit queries. So when it comes to policy, the policy or the healthcare provider query process, so that's the one process um, that's separate from the patient and public and community organization um, process. So what happens is that they would come in and then we would check to see uh, we have a certain amount of funding from CIHR for a certain number of queries every year. So we would check to see, do we still have funding for it? And then if not, we would have to ask the organization that they would have to fund it in full. And then we would check to see if it has ever been done before. So we do the literature searches because we try not to uh, increase research waste. We actually try to reduce it. <laughs> so if it's been done before, so if a high quality systematic review, as an example, exists in the last five years, then what we would do is we would write a lay summary of that um, or a policy brief on that and send it to our, our whoever submitted that query and say, you know, this has been done before. Here it is. Hopefully that's helpful to you. Um, so we really want to make sure we're only addressing research gaps so that we're not increasing research waste. And then we would uh, see if they if if perhaps we don't have funding for it, do they have funding for it? If the query comes from Health Canada or Public Health Agency of Canada, they have to fund it in full because CIHR has asked us not to use our funding from the federal government through research dollars for that. So they would have to pay for it, of course, um, because we all have to pay for our staff and whatnot. And we also have uh, extensive compensation appreciation policy for patient and public partners that we co-created with patient and public partners that we can speak to as well. And then, so when it comes to the patient and public partner and community organization queries, that has never gone through a prioritization process yet. So usually, you know, if Health Canada comes to us, they've already done some kind of prioritization in-house to say that this topic is a priority. Now with, you know, individual patient partners or community members and whatnot, these are very important topics 
for those with lived experience, but perhaps they haven't been prioritized. And like Linda said, perhaps there are multiple people who have the same question that we could potentially bring together. Because one of our big roles is to bring people together to do this, this research together. So we would go through a prioritization panel where we would have on the panel, we would have quite a few patient and public partners. We would have policy decision makers, health system uh, managers, for example. We'd have healthcare providers and researchers on there as well as trainees. And we would prioritize which of these projects or topics do we feel is the most impactful. And then again, according to the CIHR funding that we receive, we have a certain number of projects that we can fund through that mechanism as well. And we also work with Indigenous partners too, who are working with different communities across Canada. And so we would say for, you know, we would have a certain uh, budget earmarked for that really, really important work. And so we would make sure that a certain number of projects or questions are being answered, you know, with that amount of money as well. I can't help but commend you both on being able to bring together something of such sheer magnitude and run it so efficiently. And my last question on that topic is, can anybody um, become one of those research teams that you potentially contact in order to conduct the knowledge syntheses? Or is it perhaps only open towards your members? Um, and if so, how does membership work? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, Anna. So we welcome everyone with open arms. So anyone who wants to be a member of the Spore Evidence Alliance in Canada and internationally are welcome to join. Um, if it's a trainee, we ask them to also have their supervisor join because there are many different benefits for trainees. So, for example, they can participate in a project like we've talked about. Uh, we also have an annual seed grant that has different themes every year where we provide early career researchers as well as trainees with $10,000 of seed funding. Uh, towards whatever idea that they're working on. And we have patient and public partners who peer review that alongside researchers. And, and then we also have many different capacity building events. So we have webinars, we have like our annual general meeting where anyone can attend, even if you're not a member of the Spore Evidence Alliance, you can attend. And we held that two weeks ago, uh, where we had some really interesting discussions on trauma informed approaches to patient and public engagement, which was really great. And we had a really fascinating panel of lived experience and working with communities uh, within the lived experience domain, and those experiencing health inequities. So, so that was really great. Uh, so there's many different ways that people can get involved. We also have our governance committees too, that uh, four of them are co-chaired by patient and public partners. And Linda has been a long-standing member of our governance structure since day one. And then we also have different membership um, in those different uh, committees that we have as well. Um, and then in terms of how do you become a research team? So it would be teams that have expertise in doing knowledge synthesis and knowledge translation across the country. So, you know, in, in order to be involved, you would email someone within the team, someone within the Spore Evidence Alliance network, and just say that I'm doing rapid reviews or whatnot, or I'm interested in doing scoping reviews, and how can I get involved? And we're happy to have the discussion and make sure you have the capacity and that you have the expertise, of course, to to do that. Um, and, you know, we've never turned away a team before. Uh, sometimes what we've done is kind of a co-leadership model where we've shared staff between teams, like a more junior team. 
we team them up with a more senior team and they provide the the capacity building and they share staff and they share the funding and everyone becomes co-authors on those projects. So we do have a few case examples where we have done that for less experienced teams. And then those teams actually move forward and, and take on more queries by themselves, which is great. Um, and we've also had uh, this experience with trainees where at the start, they were more participating as a member. And then later on, they actually started leading the queries themselves because they now had that expertise. Um, and I think the same with the patient and public partners. So oftentimes we'll pair up a more senior patient and public partner with a more junior one and they give each other coaching and they kind of learn together. And then the more junior patient and public partner starts, you know, next time becomes a senior one and they use that coaching model as well. So we really believe in continuous growth and, and really coming at things from a capacity building perspective and really allowing people to grow and learn and, and also develop those relationships with policy decision makers and patient and public partners and continue on so that it's not just the senior people always doing the work, but really it's the next generation of scientists and the next generation of patient and public partners. And, and that's really a big core uh, component of what we do at the Spore Evidence Alliance is leaving a legacy that uh, when we're all gone, that this work, could, very good work continues and that people are properly placed and have the expertise to do this work and continue carrying the flag. Yeah, and, and to add to that, patient the patient partners actually deliver a lot of the training, co-develop a lot of the training as well. So, you know, we have two of our evidence lines patient partners have been doing a lot of it and leading a lot of it, Janet Gunderson and Maureen Smith, and they're absolutely amazing and fabulous at it. And so you just kind of try to pull out everybody's strengths. I've been more, I do a lot of training as well. I haven't for the Evidence Alliance, but I do for other networks. Um, but I, I really have benefited from the training. You know, I've done rapid reviews before I took the training, but I really felt a lot more capable uh, after I took the training. And I just, you know, to have it from two other patient partners, I think is also, you know, it, it's, it's just, uh, it works really well. Yeah. And Linda has been just phenomenal with a lot of webinars that we've done together. Uh, Linda for the research teams. And so we have done capacity building together for sure um, and helping the research teams. And also I know you're involved with the appreciation policy and making sure it makes sense, which we're trying to revamp. And I believe you're involved with the conflict of interest policy as well. So, <laughs> so Linda's been involved with everything as you hear, Anna, and, and everything we do, whether it's a policy, whether it's a project, whether it's a process, whether it's peer review, we really want all of that to be co-designed and co-created with our patient and public partners. And just like a thing, something that seems so simple, but never, nobody ever did it for me before the Evidence Alliance was to work on my CIHR CV. Okay, now they have, at least they have a biosketch. When I first started, it was not very patient friendly. And for a patient to fill out that form, it was kind of frustrating because there was, but then through that, they've adapted that and now have a more patient focused uh, CV. And it's the Evidence Alliance that really helped me navigate that and get a PIN number and get all, I mean, it sounds so simple, but it's hard to be a patient partner and engage in research if you don't have that you know, and not every research network's, you know, in a position or willing to help you with that kind of thing. 
Yeah, no, thank you for mentioning that, Linda. So we we love to support and help out in any way. So whether it's formatting your CV for CIHR, you know, helping us questions on, you know, other areas or any way we can provide support, we're really there. Um, and because we do see this as a partnership. And before we go in and explore your approach to engagement within the network, I just also want to validate how impressive and awesome it is, your commitment to capacity building, and as well as your openness to, it sounds like anyone become a member, become trained up and really contribute to the research endeavors. Yeah, And I just want to put a shout out for our staff that work at the Alliance who are so skilled and I don't think that we could do any of this without them. I mean, they just uh, are so easy to work with. It is in the right place. Um, they just want to help and they want to do good work and anything, any way that they can support anyone in the network is exactly you know what they're there for. So thank you for reminding me, Linda, <laughs> to give a huge shout out to our central team of the Spore Evidence Alliance. They're just a fantastic, fantastic group of people. I'd also checked out your um, your general meeting. I wrote down the wrong date, so I ended up missing it. But I can't recommend it to people next year enough. Like at your write up, it seemed like you had so many engaging speakers as well to help teach people about trauma-informed approaches to research. And it kind of seemed like something where if people went, they could not only help learn more about the um, Evidence Alliance, as well as how to be involved in it, but then also learn about important and hot topics and research as well. So I just want to say that it's like going to be circled in red on my calendar next year as well, because I had really wanted to attend it this year. So anybody out there, also check it out yourself as well? Well, the trauma-informed engagement session was really interesting for me. I've done a lot of patient engagement over the years. As I said, I've interacted with the system and had some fairly negative experiences. So it's something that has happened to me in different roles where, you know, I'll relive a particularly traumatic point in my life and how to manage that and how to deal with that. And uh, so that I'm hoping that I just had on a call this morning, actually, where we were talking about that as well, trauma informed and how to how to manage that and how to help people uh, get through that. And I'm hoping that that you know, webinar that we did or the annual meeting, we can come out make that as a resource for for other people to d- deliver that type of workshop. Yes, 100% Linda. So just to let you know, also Anna, so sorry you missed our day, Um, but everything is going to be recorded and posted on our website. So you can stay tuned to that. So the team is doing a little bit of editing on it, but all of the various sessions will be posted. And to your point, Linda, if you feel that, you know, anyone in your network would benefit from watching that session in particular on the trauma-informed approaches, uh, please do share that widely. And for anyone who's listening, if you are interested it will be um, posted on the Spore Evidence Alliance website. And there is a section in there for all the previous webinars. So you'll also see previous webinars done by Linda and myself and others as well. And probably we'll have a post on this uh, podcast as well there. So for those of you who uh, want to you know, share those materials, please feel free to. All right. So now switching gears a little, could you please tell us about some of the different ways that patients are engaged within the network and as well as any supports that uh, facilitate that engagement? 
Yeah, I, I think so. Because I was thinking the one thing I'd like to mention is just that, that the patients that I know within the network, they, they do what they want to do, what they're passionate about. I do a lot of work around governance and, and oversight of making sure patient engagement's included. Uh, others might be more engaged in training, like Marie and Janet. Others might just want to participate in a rapid review, and that's all they want to do. So, But there's never, I mean, we, it, the Evidence Alliance has always tried to facilitate what the patients are interested in working on and no pressure to take on more, but also there's the opportunity to take on more and learn more if that's what you want to do. Are there any key considerations that you've learned about patient engagement through your involvement with the SPORE Evidence Alliance? That I think for me, it was it's about the, the openness to improving the openness to you know the flexibility on how how patients engage everybody's different so there's always acknowledgement that everybody is different that some people are at a point where they might want to do a rapid review and that's it some people want to participate in a research project some people want to be on a steering committee so it's always that uh, constant support and acknowledgement that you know you're accepted for whatever your contributions are and your contributions are valuable i don't you know i've always felt like my participation with the evidence alliance brings that value and they appreciate the my perspective that i bring to that to the conversations and uh, I just, you know, it's been for me the gold standard in patient engagement. There's a couple of things that I work on. One is a New Brunswick project that I'm involved with on case management and primary care. Uh, it's been a wonderful experience uh, for working with them uh, for the same reasons is that you do feel your value. Yeah, no, and it's just been such a great learning opportunity for me. And so when I started on this journey, um, you know, in 2017, I really had no clue about patient and public engagement. And I've just learned so much being able to work alongside with Linda and, and so many other people who've been doing this for many, many years before me. Um, and I think in this space, you really have to come to it with a growth mindset and a learning mindset and a continuous quality improvement mindset. So as Linda mentioned previously, Today, we do several evaluations of our patient engagement on an ongoing basis to make sure that we are keeping people engaged, that we are doing things correctly. Uh, we're very cognizant of the potential for re-traumatizing people. We do not want to do that. You know, coming into this with the best of intentions and really making sure that the engagement is not tokenistic and that it really is uh, people coming together as equal members on the team. So for me, myself, I've learned so much and it is special thanks to people like Linda who have held my hand along the way and have, you know, told me when, you know, I could do things differently or consider things differently in a very nice, gentle way. Um, and as researchers, you know, sometimes we're used to that everything is done the way we want to and, and the way we want things to be done. But but doing patient and public engagement is a very different way of operating. So we really need to let the patient and public partners take the lead and learn from them and grow together and always find ways to, to grow and always find ways to um, make sure that we're improving as time goes on. And it's interesting because the project, the one project on evaluation of patient engagement in the alliance with Cleon, some of the recommendations that came out um, by the time we finished the focus groups and the workshop, 
probably half of the recommendations had already been implemented. So, you know, that's just kind of a testament to how they, they're acting on things and how sometimes even before it's identified as an issue, it's already there's a it's getting resolved and addressed. So. That's amazing. It definitely sounds like the capacity building and all of the investment and growth um, is not only external, but internal as well, which is great to see within any sort of group or organization. So now as my last question, I'm going to ask if there's anything else that you would like to share about the Spore Evidence Alliance that you haven't shared um, already. And also I'm wondering whether you could share any key takeaways that you'd like to leave the listeners with. I guess I'll, I'll kick off. Um, I think I don't think there's anything additional I need to share. I think we've talked a lot about, you know, how how well they work. I guess some of the key takeaways were is the communication and the inclusiveness of the engagement, right? That uh, I think for the Evidence Alliance, all the patient partners feel if they have a concern that they're, they can bring it forward, that they don't have to kind of figure out how to, they're going to talk to Andrea about it. She's been open. Uh, everybody at the Alliance, all the staff, the, the coordinating office, uh, very open to hearing from patients. And so I think that's made the patient partners feel very comfortable in bringing forward when they have ideas or concerns or thoughts. Thank you so much, Linda. Yeah, so completely agree with that, that communication is key and really creating that positive environment for people to collaborate together and, and making sure that everyone is there as equal members of the team and trying to change the culture of research within Canada so that we are more open to patient and public engagement and seeing the value and really actually letting them lead the way and, and um, you know, giving them the highest level of authority. Like, I think we still have some advocacy to do with our health research funder, and it sounds like they will be potentially um, launching some new different initiatives uh, to allow that to happen in the future, which I think would be really, really great. So I think more opportunities for patient partners, at least to co-lead, if not lead uh, the research, because what we have found is that, you know, even at the question stage, the input from patient and public partners is just so valuable. And the most important questions actually come from those who are living with the condition, right? So sometimes we think as researchers or policymakers, we know best, but really it's those who've lived with this condition, you know, for 25 years plus, right, that actually know the health system better than any of us. So we really need to take their lead. And if you are planning as a researcher to do more within the patient engagement realm, definitely find some people who are uh, wanting to, to work with you on that and, and that they can guide you. Like I said, working with Linda and others within the Spore Evidence Alliance has really helped me know how to do this properly and know how to do this in a way that being as supportive as possible as I can with the patient and public partners and making sure that they are feeling engaged and that they are feeling heard. So it is a different way of doing research. And we want to encourage people to do that. And also at the same time, make sure that you have the resources and you have the connections in place to, to be able to make sure that you do it well. And also making sure that um, you have a good appreciation policy. So how will you make sure that you show your appreciation to the patient and public partners? So will you offer them perhaps, you know, a stipend 
for their time? Will you offer them uh, authorship? If they've been involved in that project, they absolutely fulfill the intellectual property requirements um, that is set by medical journals, as an example, for them to be authors. Um, Perhaps sometimes they don't want to be listed as authors because um, perhaps it's a condition that may be stigmatized or perhaps they they are just not comfortable being listed or named. Uh, you have to follow whatever the patient and public partners want. So you have to have a talk with them. How can I show my appreciation for you properly? Sometimes they may not be able to receive payment because they may have disability insurance and there may be tax implications. Like there are things that are going on in their lives that we just can't even think about. So we have to talk to them and ask them, you know, what would be your preference? How can we show our appreciation? How can we acknowledge you on this project? Do you want to be listed as an author? Do you want to be listed in the acknowledgement? Do you not want to be listed at all? You know, and so having a a real solid plan for engagement, when do you need them to engage? What will will their tasks be? A little exercise that we like to do for every project is just thinking through what are the roles? What are the time points of engagement? How will we communicate together? When will the updates be provided? Um, As Linda said, communication here is really key and you need to do a lot more communication when you're working, you know, with such a, a diversity of knowledge users on the team. So that that's really, really key. Um, So thinking through all of those issues and making sure that you have a really solid plan and and how are you going to report your engagement as well? Um, And what will you do if a problem comes up with engagement? Who will get involved? How will you handle it in a respectful way that is not re-traumatizing? And how will you disseminate your findings? Will you write a lay summary or ask the patient or public partner to write a lay summary on your project? Uh, Will you report your public engagement using the checklists that are available out there? And also finally evaluating your patient engagement on an ongoing basis, again, to make sure that you are doing this in a way that is meaningful and also that people are feeling that they have been engaged properly to whatever way they want, whatever preference they want. Um, has to be has to be set and has to be evaluated to make sure that um, you're doing this in a very effective way. And to add to that, to make sure that you have good training in place for your patient partners, because uh, not all patient partners, when they're new to it, they don't always understand the research process. So you have to give them that basic foundational knowledge of the research process and of patient engagement and of the CIHR and, and all these players so they can understand the whole ecosystem, right? That they can uh, come in and have that tools to be able to contribute. Those are really powerful and helpful uh, closing words. So thanks so much, Andrea and Linda, for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge, wisdom, and activities with us. So for those of you out there listening, please be sure to check out our website, asperusual.substack.com for resources from today's episode, an interactive transcript from this and previous episodes. Please also remember to subscribe to this podcast through our website or wherever it is that you download your podcast episodes. If you'd like to contact me, please shoot me an email at anna.asperusual at gmail.com. And thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's keep working together to make patient engagement and research the standard, or as per usual.